We believe that you are God, the only God. We believe in your death, your burial, your resurrection. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe that you're coming back. We believe, Lord, that you love us. And you loved us enough to die for us. Thank you for that. And we believe that you are not only interested in, but involved in our lives because you live within us. Thank you for that. Lord, it is our prayer today that the worship that we offered was holy and pleasing to you. Thank you for letting us participate in it. Look forward to what you have for us in the rest of this service. And Father, I look forward to what we bring to you with the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As I was studying for the message this last week, I was reflecting on something that happened in 1997. I was 28 years old. I am pretty convinced that I was the smartest I had ever been when I was 28 years old. I was the smartest I would ever be when I was 28 years old. And I measure that by situations like this. Now, I know I've shared this with you before, but it was really running through my mind this week as I was studying for the message. We were serving at a church in Colorado, and Father's Day was rapidly approaching. The leaders of the church had really appreciated all of the efforts in the years past to celebrate dads. Women's ministry had taken that on. And and so they looked at that and they said, we're really, really thrilled by what they've done. And what they had done leading up to 1997 were a lot of little banquets where they served baked ham with pineapple on the top of it and a cupcake to all the dads. And sometimes they'd have a sports blooper video and then the little girls in the church would get up and they would sing and dance and it would warm your heart. And and so the leaders were saying, that's been really good, but we'd like to do something different this year. And they looked at me and they said, Phil, would you take that on? Would you come up with something different for Father's Day to celebrate dads so we're not just throwing that to women's ministry? I said, I'd, I'd be happy to. But I wasn't sure what I was going to pull off. I'd never put together a Father's Day program. So I was sitting at a restaurant one morning having breakfast with a friend of mine named Larry. And I told Larry about this new challenge that I had. And Larry said, I have an idea. I said, really? What do you got, Larry? He said, well, you know I own a parasailing business. And I said, I do. He said, what if we just make that available to all of the dads in the congregation? We'll take all the dads parasailing for Father's Day. We'd have a big barbecue, and and it'll be a great day. We'll take everybody parasailing. Sounded wonderful. Still sounds wonderful. But what you have to know about Larry's parasailing business is that it's different than what you're probably familiar with. Most parasailing companies happen out over water. Or parasailing experiences happen out over water. They hook you up behind a boat and they tow you out into the water and you sail up above the the lake or the ocean or wherever you happen to be and they drag you around for a while and then land you perfectly back on the target. Well, that's not the way Larry's worked. Because let me remind you, I was serving at a church in Colorado. There's no oceans there. There are some big bodies of water, but there are no oceans. Larry's parasailing business happened over land. Here's the way it worked. Larry would strap you into a parachute, and then he would hook a 1,000-foot rope on the front of you at the local airport. Larry would tighten up the rope, and then he, through a radio, would tell you 
one, two, three, here we go. When he said, one, two, three, here we go, you were to take a giant step, as big of a step as you could, and then follow it up with two more as fast as you could. Three steps, you'll go a thousand feet up in the air, and you will go up very rapidly. This is the way it works. One, two, three, here we go. One step, two step, three step. In five seconds, you are a thousand feet up in the air. Now, Larry still has you tethered to the back of his truck. Through the radio that he holds in his hand into your headset, Larry tells you ahead of time, I'm going to give you one command, but I'll say it three times. I'm going to tell you to cut away, but I'll say cut away, cut away, cut away. When I say cut away three times, pull the ripcord and the rope will fall back to the ground. Works perfectly, by the way. So cut away, cut away, cut away, rope goes down. From that point, you're skydiving. That's, that's exactly what it is. You are skydiving. Now, if you've never been skydiving before, it could be a little bit overwhelming to think about that. So Larry says, I will talk you through everything you need to do. As you're coming down, if you're listing to one side, I'll tell you to pull on the other side. I will watch you all the way down. As you get close to the ground at 20 feet above the ground, I will tell you to pull both sides and that will start to collapse your parachute and you will come down to the ground gently and it'll be a perfect landing. All you have to do is listen to me. Oh, we got excited. We got excited. So we put out a sign-up sheet for all the dads. Told them that we were going to grill steaks out at the airport Sunday afternoon after we had been in church for Father's Day. And every dad that was willing to could put their name on this and they could go parasailing for free. It can be a great day. All of the dads that were brave enough to sign up did. And the other dad said, we're going to come watch because certainly there's going to be a big muddy splat at some point. So we want to be there. Church was over. Everybody got in their rigs. We went out to the the airport, and of course they had to decide who was going to be the first one to go a thousand feet up in the air, tethered to the back of Larry's truck, and I was the youth minister, and Matt, you know how this works, that meant I went to the top of the, the list, and so I was the first one strapped in. Tina was watching at that particular time with just our oldest son, Nick. They were standing over on the side. Nick started to cry. He was a little bit concerned about what was going to happen. So Tina was trying to calm him down, and I'm watching over there as tears are running down my son's face, and my wife is a little bit concerned, but still, I'm ready to go. So Larry straps me in. He puts the rope on my chest, tells me, one, two, three, here we go. I take my three giant steps. Everything's working perfect. I'm now a 1,000 feet up in the air. I hear Larry clear as day say, cut away, cut away, cut away. I pull the ripcord, rope goes down, I am sailing along, it is a perfect day, until I was about 300 feet above the ground, and then things got really bad. There was a jet stream or something at 300 feet above the ground that just started blowing me every different direction, and I kept thinking, Larry said he's going to tell me what to do. (laughs) I couldn't hear Larry. Larry was... Larry was gone. And so in my head, I'm waiting to hear Larry say, pull right, pull left, Phil, because I'm all over the place. Do something. Larry, talk to me. Nothing is coming through. At that particular moment, I'm thinking, where is Larry's voice? I can't hear Larry. What has happened to Larry? What in the world am I supposed to do? So I am yanking cords right, left, doing everything that I could possibly do to get myself straightened up. Somehow the hand of God grabbed me and got me through that air pocket, but the ground was coming up rapidly. 
And so as I'm getting closer to it, I thought, Larry's going to tell me at 20 feet above the ground, I'm supposed to pull both and it's going to collapse the chute and I'm going to come down very nicely. I can't hear a word from Larry and I have no idea where 20 feet is. So as I'm getting closer to the ground, I just start pulling the thing in, collapsing the chute. Apparently I did that a bit early. And so that meant that I came down faster than I was supposed to, and I hit the ground with a great thud. Now, I had watched enough movies by that point to know that when you hit the ground at that rate, you better roll. So I rolled, and here comes the the chute down behind me. Larry gets out of his pickup, and he comes running over to me, and he said, Oh, man, Phil, (laughs) batteries went dead in my radio. What do you mean the batteries went dead in your radio? Don't you think you ought to change those before we come out? And he said, look like you got a little hairy up there at about 300 feet. Yeah, I got a little hairy at 300 feet. So all these other dads are standing over on the edge of the runway trying to decide if they're going to strap in and trust Larry. As I was floating back towards the ground at Mach 1 or 2, whatever it was, at that moment, at that just brief moment, I understood completely how the disciples felt in one of the accounts found in the Gospels. Let me show it to you. If you brought a Bible with you, open to Mark chapter 4, second of the Gospels, second book of the New Testament. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Oh, this is a personal story for me in Scripture. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? That's exactly where my identification with the disciples comes into play. I was thinking, Larry, do you not care that I am perishing as I am falling down here? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. What a great story. What a great story. But if you really want to get into it, you have to choose to pick this story apart so that you can get the entire context. As you do, you will see some surprising things come out of it. Like this, at first glance, we believe that this story is solely about Jesus's power to calm the wind and the waves, his power over nature. And certainly it is, but it is a lot more than that. The miracle of this story is a lot more than that. In fact, when you really peel away all the layers of the onion, what you're going to discover is that this is all about faith testing. Now let me show you what I mean by that. In order to understand it, you have to look at this statement right in verse 35. Here it is up on the screen. On that same day. Now, the way this starts gives us a wonderful foundation to build everything else upon. On that same day. So what does that mean? 
You have to go back in Mark chapter 4 and figure out everything that was happening on that same day in order to make this make sense. Jesus had been teaching all day long. Crowds were all around them. There were three different parables that he shared with all of those that were in attendance. Each one of those parables was on the kingdom of God. But tucked away in the middle of all of that teaching, Jesus made statements like these to the apostles. Go back to verse 11. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Now, right there, Jesus just told them, you have some supernatural understanding of everything that I am talking about. Right here, right now, you have some insight that other people don't have. So once he had said that to them, in verse 24, Jesus would make this statement. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. So speaking to the disciples, he says, you have this supernatural understanding that other people do not have. I'm going to speak in parables to them. They're going to be somewhat confused, but it's going to make sense to you. I'm going to make sense to you, Jesus is telling them. And then he says, pay close attention to what you're hearing. Pay close attention to what you're hearing. Right there in those two statements, Jesus is setting up what's going to happen in verse 36 and following. Are you you tracking with me? Jesus has said to him, you have some great insight. Pay close attention to it because I'm going to test it. I'm going to test it. Now in Romans chapter 10 verse 17, we find this great truth. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. They had been hearing the word of Christ. Their faith had been growing based on the teaching that they were surrounded with. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Their entire day, they had been hearing from Jesus. They had been right there while he was teaching. So the test was ready. Now let's just pause here for a second. Just push pause and follow me through this. Faith will always be tested. Faith must always be tested. Faith that is untested is worthless. It is not enough for us to hear the Word of God. It is not even enough for us to be able to teach the Word of God. If we do not live what we have heard, if we do not live what we believe, it is of no value whatsoever. So faith has to be tested. The things that we have been taught have to be tested. The things that we have learned have to be tested. It is a necessary part of our relationship with God. But it is a tough part of our relationship with God. Most of us would try to do everything possible to avoid the testing. But it doesn't have to be that way. It really doesn't. But once we understand that faith is going to be tested, it sets the stage for us to ask at least one question. And it is a faith question. In the midst of testing, it is the most common, the most familiar question. Looks like this. What is God trying to teach me? When we are in the middle of a test or on the backside of a test, that's the question we ask. What is God trying to teach me? But there is a subtle little twist of that question 
that is a lot better. It is the type of question that we really should ask because it'll give us the right perspective. That question looks like this. What has God been teaching me? Because that's what he's testing. He is testing what he has been teaching you. So when we ask, what is God trying to teach me? We're already behind the eight ball. When we ask, what has God been teaching me? We are a lot better prepared to move into what waits for us, what sits ahead of for us. So ask it this way. What has God been teaching me? And that will allow you to look back over the lessons so that you can move forward into the test. It really is that simple. And in verse 36, in Mark chapter 4, that's exactly how this thing plays out. Jesus has been teaching them some faith lessons. Now it's time to test it. That's all it is. It's time to test it. But like anyone, the disciples really aren't too thrilled about test. Most of us are not too thrilled about test. Test at the very heart of what they are cause a certain sense of fear to rise in anybody. There are few people, though I would say there are some, but there are few people that love tests of any sort because tests reveal something about us. They show us whether we're prepared or whether we're not. Tests reveal something deep within us that says, am I adequate? Or it asks, am I adequate? Am I ready? Am I prepared for what sits in front of me? That's why fear is such a natural reaction. And then when we apply that to our faith, it can lead us to this question, why is God testing me? Why would the Lord do this? And then the fear rises even more. And then we find ourselves in a place where we can't even think straight. But it doesn't have to be that way. In any testing capacity, it does not have to be that way, particularly within faith. If you need some help with that, just take a look at how dictionary.com defines testing. This isn't negative at all. Testing, according to dictionary.com, means a way of discovering by questions or practical activities what someone knows or what someone or something can do or is like, or the second definition, an act of using something to find out if it is working correctly or how effective it is. And then the third, a situation that shows how good something is. That's the definition of test. That's the definition of testing. Now, that's simply from dictionary.com. The Bible takes it a little bit deeper. In the Hebrew language, test is translated this way. It means to examine, investigate, prove, or scrutinize. I like the way Solomon would help us understand that in the book of Proverbs. Chapter 17, verse 3 says, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. In the Greek language, in the New Testament, testing is translated this way. To put to the test, prove, examine, and by implication, to approve. By implication, to approve. So in the New Testament, when we read about God testing us, we have to know that it has an ultimate purpose so that God can approve our faith, so that he can approve our walk with him. 
The Apostle Paul would say this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. By the way, the word test and approve in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is the exact same word. That's how much God believes in you. He would use the word test to lead to approve because he believes in you. He believes that as his child, you are up for it. You can handle it. You're ready for what's going to come your way. Peter understood that. That's why he wrote these words in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. Well, let me just back up so that we put it in full context. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God believes in you. He believes that you are ready for the test. Whatever one he puts in front of you, he's already taught you everything that you need to have in order to be prepared for it. James chapter 1, verse 12, would help us understand that. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. God believes in you. He believes that you're ready for whatever it is he's going to put in front of you. If you're just listening, if you're paying attention, on that same day, the tests tend to follow the teaching very, very closely. They come quickly. So when you have something revealed to you, be ready for the test that will follow. But as you are ready and prepared, know that God believes in you. Know that God is expecting the best of you. He is leading you unto the crown of life. And what he's testing in you will be refined like gold or silver. The Lord believes in you. He believes in you. God also knows that sometimes we fall short. God also knows that sometimes we forget the things that we've been taught. And so he is always close by, ready at times with a miracle. And that's what happened in Mark chapter 4. All you have to do is start in verse 36 and begin to stack things together and you'll see how the Lord set the test up. He went with them just as he was, the Bible says in Mark chapter 4, which meant Jesus was tired. He was tired when he got on that boat. He'd been teaching all day long. There had been crowds around them all day long. And he said, let's go to the other side. Let's head over there. And they said, okay. So they got him on the boat just as he was. Worn out and exhausted. When Jesus got into the bow of the boat, laid down on the cushion, 
He knew what was coming. This was not a surprise to him. This was, this was on the agenda for the day, this storm was. So when Jesus said, let's go to the other side, he knew what they were going to go through. And then when he went to sleep, he knew what was coming. So he was already setting it up. The wind was going to get bad. The waves were going to swamp the boat. He was going to sleep through it, but he was right there with them. And the miracle was as well. He knew how this whole thing would play out. He knew that they would cry out to him. He knew that they would forget everything that they had heard. He knew that even though he had told them, now pay close attention, they they wouldn't. In this moment, when things got real bad, he knew what their reaction would be. Their reaction, not much different than ours. Many of us do the exact same thing. Do you not care that we're about to die? Where are you? And we call on Jesus like our our giant problem solver. The Lord gets up and stills the wind and the waves. And then we start asking other questions. Who is this? Just like the apostles did. Who is this? And sadly enough, we could find ourselves in a situation where we miss the miracle all the way around when the Lord steps in and saves us. Now here's what I mean by that. The miracle was not the calming of the wind and the waves. Oh, certainly it it was miraculous. But the real miracle was the peace that he offered them. I'm here with you. It's okay. I'm here with you. You don't need to be worried. The miracle in the midst of a test like this is the presence of Jesus. That's the miracle. It's okay. And they could have missed it without ever opening their eyes to what was happening. It's entirely possible that we would do the same if we weren't ready for the test. Let me encourage you to make sure you are. And there is a simple way to do that by taking a quiz before the test. You remember quizzes when you were in school? We have students with us right now. If I said, do you remember the last quiz you took? Do you you remember? Do you remember the last quiz you took? If you're still in school, shake your head yes. Quizzes are given for a reason. They are given to prepare us for the test that is coming. That's why teachers give quizzes, to prepare you for the test that is coming. And so maybe you need to take a quiz. And you might say, preacher, what in the world are you talking about? What is a faith quiz? Well, I'll show it to you. Open up to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 5. 2 Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 5. If you're a note taker, you might want to write faith quiz in the margin of your Bible. Here it is. Still some pages turning. I want you to get there so you see it. The Apostle Paul says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. There's the quiz. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Because if you are completely terrified of faith testing, it could easily be a faith issue. You are not firmly in the faith so that you can trust 
Jesus. So examine yourself. Test yourself. Get the answer. Find out so that when the test come, you can pass the test. Refined by God, you can come out as gold, ready to stand before him and say, I don't care how big the wind gets. It doesn't matter to me that the waves are coming over the side of the boat. I'm in the faith, and so it's all right. Then, in that moment, you are set up for the miracle of peace. You are set up for whatever else it is that God has in store for you. That's all it takes. So quiz yourself. Find out whether you're in the faith. And if you are, some of the fear will begin to dissipate and peace will replace it. Examine yourself. Test yourself and see whether you're in the faith. It's a simple thing, but still, we don't love it. We don't want to do it, but we should. And when we do, we're ready for the miracle. And I want to give you three ways to make sure that you don't miss the miracles that God has for us, particularly the miracle of peace. Each one of them comes from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. So let's go back there. Here's the first one. It'll be up on the screen. Look back for God's plan. Here's what I mean by that. Verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. That was God's plan. So if the Lord has told you to get in the boat and go to the other side, get in the boat and go to the other side. That is the only detail that Jesus gave them. Here it is again, just so you can make sure you have it. Let us go across to the other side. Jesus didn't tell them why. He didn't tell them what they were going to experience. He didn't give them a quick glimpse into the storm that was coming. The only detail that he gave them was his intention to get to the other side. Let us go to the other side. That was God's plan. The Lord seldom gives us all the details. The Lord seldom fills in all the blanks for us. He just gives us the direction. Once you have the direction, get in the boat. That's it. Lord, take care of the rest of it. Get in the boat. If that is all he has revealed to you of his plan, get in the boat. Does that make sense? Just get in the boat. But how many of you at some point in your life have said, Lord, I've got a few other questions before I get in the boat? A lot of us have. Well, that's just wasted effort. Get in the boat. Because the Lord has everything else worked out. You look at his plan as it has been revealed to you and get in the boat. That's it. So you look back to see what God's plan is. Then, number two, you look around for God's presence. Now, here's where the disciples kind of got in trouble. They saw Jesus asleep on the cushion in the boat. So they knew he was there. But that's all they grabbed hold of. They knew he was there. They forgot that he is the Son of God, even though Jesus had just been revealing that to them all day long. They forgot that he was the Son of God. Now, why is that so significant? Simple answer to that. Do you really think God was going to let the boat go down with his Son in it? No. No. I'm in God's plan, and I am with God's Son. The boat's not going down. God isn't going to let it go down. Remember the quiz that you're supposed to take? Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. If you are in the faith, that means that Jesus is in you. 
And if Jesus is in you, wherever you go, he goes. And so when you are moving into God's plan, Jesus is in that plan. So no matter how bad the wind gets, no matter how huge the waves might appear, the boat's not going down because the Son of God is in it. That's God's plan. He didn't say, I'm going to put you in the boat to sink you. He said, I'm going to get you to the other side. It may get pretty rough, but my son's with you. And that's all you need. My son is with you. Rest easy. Rest easy. It is okay. So when you have looked back to see God's plan, and you have looked around so that you can see God's presence with you, then look up so that you can see his power, because his power is coming. His power is coming. Jesus may well have stood up on his own and calmed down those wind and waves. He may have taken care of that in some other supernatural way. And he may have just said, we're going to sail right on through this storm and it's the worst one that you've ever been in in your life, but I'm going to get you through it. And we're going to make it to the other side because that was always my plan. Let's go to the other side. Jesus never said to him, let's go to the middle of the lake and and sink. Let's go to the other side. His plan was intact. So look for his power. And sometimes his power will be nothing more than his peace. Lay down next to him. Jesus is asleep. Might as well try and get a little bit of shut eye myself. Doesn't matter how bad the storm is. I'm going to rest easy. I'm going to be okay through this. Right now, this is one of those miracles that it just seems like we all need. We need the miracle of God's peace. Because there's storms all around us. All around us. So maybe what we need more than anything is just to lay down with Jesus. Recognize the boat isn't going down because his son's in it. His son is in it. And folks, even in, in light of everything that is happening in our culture and our world, know this, the boat isn't going down with the son of God in it. God has a plan to capture his church and take us out of here before things get really bad. So he has a plan. Trust the plan. Just trust the plan. Stay in the boat. Whatever you do, stay in the boat. You just stay in the boat. Stay with the Lord. Pretty cool when we do. As I was studying through this this last week, I found something that has totally intrigued me. Completely intrigued me. Talked about it with the guys I was praying with this morning. We looked at it at a deeper level. And I want to leave you with this just because it is that intriguing. Not to beat a dead horse, it's just that intriguing. Let me show it to you. We'll start in verse 35 again. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And other boats were with him. I don't know how many times I've studied this passage, but I know that I've never set up camp on that last statement. And other boats were with him. I've always looked at the one boat that Jesus was in. I've never thought much about the other boats that sailed along. So that led me to asking myself a a couple of questions. Who were those people? Where'd those boats come from? Why is it so significant that Scripture would call that out? 
The disciples got into a boat with Jesus, just like we did. The wind and the waves got really bad. We've all been there. They cried out to God, and the Lord responded. The Lord responded in the way that, that God can so beautifully respond. He calmed it all down. And after that happened, the disciples in that boat said, who is this that even speaks to the wind and the waves? Oh, they got an answer. They got an answer. And it completed what they already knew. He's the one who can calm the sea. Because of their experience with the Lord and their experience with the Old Testament, there's a couple other things they knew, like these. Only God splits the sea, so they already knew that the Lord Jehovah God had authority over the ocean. So they knew that only God splits the sea. They also knew this. Only God stirs up the sea. So God's the one that causes the waves. God's the one who does all of this. All of that was perfectly intact for them. But the third lesson, the one that we just talked about, only God calms the sea, just became incredibly apparent to them. So what did they discover when they asked the question, who then is this? Even in their fear, he is God. He is Yahweh, Jehovah. That's who he is. They got their answer. But that was true for the ones in the boat with him. What about the other boats? What about the other boats? They didn't see what Jesus did. Didn't even hear about it until they got to the other side. They got to the other side. You can imagine the disciples telling the story of what took place. What story were those guys telling? They got in a boat and followed Jesus into the storm. That's pretty amazing. Most of the people alive during that time in the region of Galilee spent all of their life on land unless they were getting on a boat to ferry to the other side of the, the lake. They weren't seafaring people. They were landlocked people. But those that were at home on the Sea of Galilee, they knew weather patterns. That lake sits at 686 feet below sea level. It is surrounded by mountains. The weather that comes through there, the heat that, that is sitting over that, and then the cooling air that rises off of it causes these huge storms. So when they got into their boats, if any of them had any experience on the Sea of Galilee, they probably knew there was a storm coming. They just didn't know how bad it was. This is the significant part of the whole thing, at least in my mind. Those that were in the boat with Jesus... They went with him into a storm. The ones in the other boat followed him into a storm. There is a different faith application. So it leaves me asking this question of myself. Which boat would I rather be in? The first boat? Or the second boat? Or the third boat? Or the fourth boat? On the surface, I would want to say, I want to be in the first boat because that's where Jesus is. But a faith answer to the question is, I'd rather be in the second boat or the third boat or the fourth boat because my faith is strong enough that I'll follow him into the storm. I won't just wait to cry out to him when the storm is raging. I'll follow him into it. If that's where he wants to go, I'll follow him into it. The miracle was peace and presence and faith. Look past the surface of the miracle and see the truth of it. Why don't you stand with me?
Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for this account. I want to call it that because it's not a story. It's an account of what happened. Given to us to teach us. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So Lord, help us hear that our faith might grow. Think of the storms that we all face, and there are big ones, raging around us a lot. And we want to know that you are with us. But Father, at times we need to know that you're ahead of us. And the peace that follows in those moments, that's spectacular. So Lord, help us follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.